0: Racism is a public health crisis. Welcome to SBH Bronx Health Talk, produced by SBH Health System, and broadcast, at least remotely for now, from the beautiful studios at St. Barnabas Hospital in the Bronx. I'm Faith Daniel. The intersection between structural racism and inequities resulting in poor health is evident in the Bronx, and the COVID-19 pandemic further exposed this fact. The Bronx ranks 62 out of 62 in New York State in terms of health outcomes. The Bronx has some of the highest rates of diabetes, hypertension, heart disease, and asthma in the nation. Structural racism, inequity, and anti-Blackness makes the Bronx a nesting ground for COVID-19. The COVID-19 mortality rate for Black Americans was 2.4 times higher than the rate for white Americans and 2.2 times higher than the rate in Asian and Latinx populations. Black and Latinx New Yorkers account for two-thirds of all fatalities, despite their accounting for only half of the population. With me today to further discuss racism as a public health crisis and the impacts COVID-19 had on people of color is Dr. Janine agile Chair of the Department of Pediatrics. Welcome, Dr. agile Thank you, Faith, for having me today. Thank you. I truly feel like it's a treat that I get to talk with you today and for us to educate our audience about how racism has honestly been in our healthcare system, has impacted people in the Bronx of health nationwide, worldwide for so long.
1: Mm, I agree. I agree. I think it's a really important topic to discuss, and I think it's very important for us to discuss the historical steps that put us where we are today.
0: Right, I agree. So my first question to you is gonna be, how has the history of racism in America impacted healthcare, in your opinion?
1: Well, I think the history of racism in America has affected more than just healthcare. And many of the things that it affects ultimately affects healthcare. So historically, there was actually legislation that was set up to disproportionately assign funding, tax dollars, to different portions of society based on the color of your community. And so that legislation was called Jim Crow laws. And in the Jim Crow laws that were set up in the late 1800s, it was legally okay to give less funding to brown and black communities. And so those communities saw less funding for education, for housing, for employment, for transportation, for food distribution, and ultimately healthcare. And when you look at all those different sectors, you can see how they all at some point intersect with healthcare. So education is something that's so necessary to even to be able to read your prescription bottles or to understand the dosing of medication. Housing is so important so that you can remain safe and maintain a certain level of health. Employment, as we have seen socioeconomic status, definitely coincides with the ability to have appropriate health care. And then transportation, getting to and from your appointments in a timely fashion. And then finally, food distribution, as we've seen in our communities, has had a great impact
0: on healthcare. Right. And I think right now, especially in the public health realm, the term social determinants is exactly what you just explained about all these social factors impact our health. So if somebody can't afford to get to their doctor they're going to choose, you know, the meal that they have to get for the day over like the bus or the train ride in order to get to their doctor.
1: Definitely, definitely. And, and the thing about these laws are, that I really want to emphasize is that they were put into effect up and enforced up until 1965. So that's 55 years ago. So that means many of our patients lived within that societal norm and still feel the repercussions of that societal norm that was upheld by a legislation. And so you can see this in the community that we now live in, in the Bronx, where we see things called food deserts, where you don't have good food within a mile of where you are, or transportation. Patients are waiting outside in the snow, in the rain to get a bus to come and see their doctor. So you can see these things actually reverberating in society now. And it's so important that we understand that they only ended 55 years ago
0: right yeah and even though it like quote unquote ended we're still seeing it show up in different ways so the fact that we have food deserts like i guess like you know speaking to somebody that may not be very familiar with those laws that you outline um and understanding systemic racism is that a food desert is systemic racism, the fact that black and brown people have to live in communities where, yeah, they may have a grocery store within like maybe a mile or two. But if we were to really look at the quality of the produce that they were getting, that all contributes to health and is a part of systemic racism. Exactly, exactly. And I think for many people too, that may not also be very well versed in this. They kind of look at it like, you know, the patient, they just they just need to eat healthy. They just need to exercise. And then I think to myself, well, how can you exercise when you feel unsafe in your own community or the parks that are near you may not be the safest or they may not be cleaned? Or if we think about recycling and the recycling um, that happens in the Bronx versus that happens in Manhattan is very different. Right. And that goes into the
1: allocation of funds. Right. And so those allocations of funds are still on the books. And so in our part, in terms of physicians and community members, particularly community hospital members, to begin to put pressure on our representatives to allocate funds that are helpful to the communities that those community representatives represent. And so, therefore, you can create parks, safe parks, where children can play in and get exercise. Schools, I mean, many of the schools in New York City, and particularly the Bronx, have taken gym out of everyday classes for kids. And this is a definite way for those kids in this area to get exercise. We can mandate grocery stores being in a certain distance and actually provide tax breaks for those supermarkets that will open up markets in certain black and brown communities. I mean, there's a lot of work that can be done in order to remove some of the disparate conditions that we see in black and brown communities.
0: And where do you think the starting point is for that? Do you think it's voting? Do you think it's you know getting the right people to be in government? Like, What are your thoughts on that?
1: I think it is a myriad of things. So I think the, one of the first things that needs to happen is consensus. So the consensus report, we are supposed to fill out every 10 years via the constitution. And I think it's so important that we as black and brown uh, community members fill it out. And this decides our representation. It decides taxation dollars. It decides how much money goes into our roads, into our schools, into our community hospitals. And so I think it's so important that we fill out the census data so that there is an accurate representation of who we are in black and brown communities. Second. I think voting is so important. And not just voting to vote, but voting and knowing who your representatives are and what their agenda is to assist you, I think is so important. And then three, community members. I think community members, there are leaders out there among us all. And there are people with voices who need to be heard. And I think it's so important for community members to be involved in the changes that we're talking about because who knows best what their community needs rather than the community member. And I think if we give community members platforms, there's a saying that says, if you build a bonfire, people will come. And so we need to um, empower our community members to build bonfires that are situated around the different topics that affect black and brown communities. We can't tackle everything at once, but there are community members who might be good at establishing better educational protocols. And so we put that community member in charge of that and he or she will build a bonfire and have a collective membership to work on that. There may be community members who are good in terms of making sure housing is appropriate and affordable and we you know, empower them to do that particular uh, project. So I think it's a number of different things that need to happen all of them working together. And I think even within that community membership, we as community hospitals also have a role to play because we sit sometimes at the center of the community because so many community members come to us for service and care, and we have the opportunity to help in those situations.
0: Right, and we also, and I love what you said about the bonfire. I think that's gonna be one of my biggest takeaways is like, give our communities the resources so they can start this bonfire and that we can empower them to use their voices and to tell their stories. Their stories are so powerful. Actually last year I lobbied for the first time and I felt so empowered to be able to sit across from people that I know can make a difference that are sitting at the table and just tell them a personal story about myself. Tell them about what it was like growing up in the Bronx and knowing that my public schools didn't have funding, that my teachers were overworked, that, you know, mm-hmm. the school lunch like wasn't appropriate, or mm-hmm. that I didn't have these extracurricular activities that some of my counterparts that I met in college had. And I think just being allowed to tell our stories, and as a community hospital, especially St. Barnabas, we're situated in a community that needs us. And we can help amplify those voices, too. We can help create that bonfire. Mm-hmm. I agree. And I think right now, given everything with COVID, especially what you were saying about schools and, you know, schools being a platform for some students to, you know, escape from their realities a little bit. What are your thoughts now, given that, you know, schools are closed, people are being asked to stay indoors to keep safe? Um, New York City already, like the way our buildings are structured, they're already so small. It's hard to keep social distancing. All of the things that we talked about help like COVID-19 remain in our communities. So what are your thoughts about how we can shift those things or the conversations that we should be having with people?
1: Uh, About putting children back to school or
0: About their safety. So it seems like, and in my opinion, it feels like the way things are, many people in the Bronx have high rates of diabetes, asthma, hypertension, all things that put you at higher risk of COVID. We also have our buildings that are structured where they're so small, it's hard to even keep social distancing. Many of our essential workers that have to go in and out the house don't have the privilege of working from home. So they're at a higher risk. Given all those things, how do we start those conversations to tell people, you know, we need help, we're being impacted more heavily than our white counterparts and this is why? I mean,
1: that is is a very hard question to answer. I mean, uh, with the children, I think the AAP just put out a statement on June 26 about getting kids back to school. And the thought process is we're not gonna prevent infection, but we will be able to mitigate infection by using some of the safety measures that we have put in place in schools. But you're right. I mean, so many of the families that I served um, now and during the pandemic live in very close quarters, unable to social distance, and are part of the essential worker class that had to go out and work. And so therefore many of them and their family members were infected with COVID-19. And so I think in cities like New York City, um, if you looked at Milwaukee, they had a similar issue. Detroit had a similar issue. When you look at cities that have populations that live in close quarters, an infection like COVID-19 is bound to spread rapidly through those communities. How do you change it? It's very difficult unless you change the social structure of the society. You can mitigate with the use of masks and with the use of hand sanitizers, but social distancing does become a problem. For me, I I mean, it's a tough question. How to social distance when you can't social distance? And I guess the best advice would be to use your mask when you can because we know that decreases transmission rate. Frequent hand washing. If you know that you've been infected, try to isolate the best way you can. Now, that's sometimes hard. I have patients that sometimes live in a one bedroom apartment and there's five or six people in the apartment. Mm -hmm. So, trying to self isolate may be a difficult scenario. But I think, in terms of housing, I mean, and that's where some of the things we talked about earlier with housing come into play. How can we get affordable housing that is appropriate for the families? that live in our communities. And maybe this is the beginning of the discussion on how we should change how some of the inner cities in which we serve operate.
0: And it also very much goes to show how all these social factors impact health and COVID-19 just exposed those injustices, like you said. You know, they have expressed all these guidelines like you mentioned about washing hands, keeping socially distant, wearing the mask, um, and there's only so much some people can do with what they have. Right. And with the example you gave about a one bedroom apartment where there's six people living there, it's almost impossible for you to remain socially distant. And God forbid, if you had to quarantine yourself, that's even more difficult. So I think that COVID-19 truly just exposed the injustices that already existed for your patients, for our communities. And you mentioned a little bit about that family, but have you also experienced or heard of any other stories about how these social components have impacted someone's risk for COVID-19 or how has it impacted your population that you work with?
1: Well, I find that a majority of the patients that I serve have been infected. We switched from face-to-face visits with our patients to telemedicine back in March. And so from March to about mid-June, we were doing a lot of telemedicine where we spoke on the phone with our patients. And many of my patients called in and said they were either COVID positive or they had symptoms of COVID. And many of them live with more than one person in their dwelling. And so all of their family members were also affected. Now prayerfully, many of them did okay. But then I do have stories of patients who lost loved ones to COVID-19. And I think a lot of it had to do with many of them having some of the underlying conditions we talked about, like diabetes and hypertension and asthma and immunodeficiency. And so I think what it has taught me is that um, as a clinician, it's time to refocus our efforts on trying to really rid ourselves of some of the things in our communities that can cause us to have poor outcomes with certain diseases. So diabetes and hypertension are two big things in black and brown communities. And they are things that we can begin to change if we begin to look at things like education and food distribution as a way to treat. And so again, what I think it taught me is that one of the things I would like to do as a pediatrician, I don't see much hypertension and diabetes, although I say in my adolescent population, I do see more uh, type two diabetes. But as a physician, it's a way for me to begin to think about how can I begin to eliminate these things in the patients that I care for? What can I do specifically that can change their outcome by changing the things that they are most commonly diagnosed with?
0: That's a really good point. Do you find that now that you're doing telemedicine, has that impacted the, I mean, obviously it's impacting the way you're delivering care because it's in a completely new format, but do you feel like you're able to still like give your patients all that they need virtually? And how has that kind of shifted your practice a little bit? So yes and no.
1: So I didn't go to medical school to talk on the phone actually i went to medical school because i wanted to have an interaction with my patients but i have to say telemedicine has been a game changer and i'm grateful for the innovation of telemedicine now telemedicine existed before covid19 but it was ramped and amplified ramped up and amplified because of covid19 and because we could not come into contact with one another i think it's a great way for me to maintain contact with my patients to find out how they're doing if i can help them in any way but it does not give you the full picture. I mean, I'm a pediatrician. So the kids that I come into contact with like to interact with me. And I like that interaction too. It helps me to maintain the team approach that I utilize to practicing medicine. I consider my patient, their parent and myself, part of the team in taking care of the patient. And so sometimes when you're just on the phone, you lose that aspect of the team approach because I can't look into your eyes. You can't look into mine. I can't see your body gestures. Now, hopefully with the use of audio and visual telemedicine that St. Barnabas is going to begin using shortly, that will come back into play. But it has impacted my practice in such that I do miss the face-to-face interactions that I have with my patients.
0: Right. Yeah. And I feel like I've heard mixed feelings. Many doctors resonate with you and say, you know, this is a game changer. You know, I'm able to talk longer with my patients. Some doctors have said that they've had less no-shows because people can kind of just like wherever they are, just like get on the phone with their doctor and ask them a question. The people that are a little more shy, they might be able to have their mom and dad or like their partner or parent there to um, assist them with like the visit. But then again, we'll always miss that social interaction. I miss a hug. I miss being able to just like see my doctor one-on-one. So I guess like in your opinion, what are some more benefits that you see with telemedicine and moving forward, especially now that um, SBH will be using the video capability soon? Well, one of the things that we
1: were talking about is the disparate conditions related to COVID-19. And so I think these video visits can help with some of the things that we just finished talking about. So the underlying conditions that many of us witnessed in black and brown communities, like asthma, hypertension, and diabetes, may be better controlled with the use of telemedicine. Because sometimes what we find is with the no-shows, typically it's the patients that may have the most comorbidities that don't show up to their appointments. And so by utilizing telemedicine, we can kind of check in on our patients more readily And when it comes to learning how to eat better, maybe that's something that could be done via telemedicine. So the chef can be online with the patients giving cooking classes or talking about how to shop better. The gym instructor, the trainer can be online with the patient talking about the best exercises to do with whatever condition you have and where you are. The physician can be checking up to making sure that one, they're losing weight if that's the goal, or they're taking their medication to make sure that their hypertension is under control. And also checking in with family members to see how best to support family members. And all of these things can be done via telemedicine without having the patient come in and having to rely on transportation or worrying about contracting COVID-19 or being concerned about the weather, whether it's raining, snowing, ice storm or not, you still have the ability to communicate with your patient.
0: That's a really good point. I do see the positives in that, you know, about the nutrition aspects, being able to like see an actual plate or being able to check in with both parents in terms of a pediatric or adolescent situation where you're able to ask them questions. And both parent may not have been able to make it to the appointment with like their adolescent. So I think that it does lend itself to have many benefits and actually mitigate some of the injustices that we find, you know, especially with people not being able to afford transportation in order to get to their visits. And doctors for you guys too, to be able to spend a little bit more time with your patients instead of like running from like room to room. So I definitely see the pluses in it as well. I do understand some of the pushback that some people have, like we mentioned about them just not being able to speak with you face to face, or they may just feel that you're not able to get like the full picture if you're not able to like touch them or like see with your own two eyes in person. Right. My final closing question for you is how can we do our part? What can I do? What can you do? What can other nurses do to help so much racism that exists in the healthcare system?
1: Well, I think the first thing to do is to recognize that there might be some bias that you have. I think that's the first thing that we all need to do is that we all have biases and whether they're based on race or ethnicity or based on the person having a disability or sexuality, we all have biases. And I think it's very important for us to recognize that we may have biases and our biases may be steeped in racism. Once you recognize that, then you're able to do something about it. And you can make a conscious choice to do something about it. So that if you see something that is happening and you know it's wrong, speak up about it. If you can put your weight behind a committee or a community program that will help address some of the societal issues, do it. If you can teach your children how to better interact with other children and talk about differences in a positive light with your children, do it. If you're at work and someone proceeds to make a joke that may be racially tinged and you're around it and you hear it. Say something about it. So I think there are things that we all can do in our portion of the world. My father always said, do what you can in your small part of the world, and it will ripple. It will have a ripple effect and affect other people. And so I think it's very important that we all do what we can in our small part of the world and allow it to have a ripple effect.
0: Oh, that was so well said. That And so powerful in that you, know, you may think that you're one of millions but in reality, that one thing you do, the one change you make can have such an impact on a life. And it's so important that we kind of take that responsibility to give it the importance that it needs. It's important.
1: Mm -hmm. I agree. I mean, they say it takes 21 days to make a habit. And so I think if you do something over and over again, just like your biases or whatever racist thoughts you've had, if you've been saying them to yourself or repeating them or putting yourself in situations where you hear them over and over again, they're going to become a part of you. But then if you do the opposite and take yourself out of those situations or tell yourself a different narrative or talk a different narrative and put yourself out there and network with people that look different from you, act different from you, who may have been raised different from you, then that also becomes a habit. And that's something that you can change about yourself and then have it affect other people.
0: And those biases and opinions hold so much weight. Sometimes when I talk to people and they say, why is it that the woman or person that clenches their bag in the elevator when they see a person of color get in the same elevator as them, how does that impact like health and life? And I'm like, well, that impacts how they maneuver through the world. It impacts how they treat other people. It impacts how they vote. It impacts where they choose to live. It impacts so many things, and so these micro aggressions and these like micro actions all add up to something larger. So it's true. It does start with the home. It starts with teaching our children to spread love and not hate, because no child is born racist. No one is born racist. Those are all taught behaviors. So if we just change the narrative, change the thinking, I truly feel like that can make an impact.
1: And I completely agree with you. And that's the key, change the narrative. So the person who clutches her purse in the elevator or who walks very close to the sidewalk, if I walk by because she's concerned or he's concerned, they've told themselves a story, right? About who I am based on whatever. They've told themselves a narrative. And so now you have to retell your narrative, retell the narrative that relates to the black woman with natural hair or the Hispanic gentleman who may be talking to his friend on the street, retell the narrative. We are so much more alike as humans than we are different And if we just change the narrative that we tell ourselves into something positive, it may change how we interact with one another on a
0: daily basis. Right. And especially for doctors, nurses, folks that interact with patients, I can't tell you how many times I've talked with people where I was like, it is the most dangerous thing for a physician or a nurse. Or when you go to these people, you're in your most vulnerable state. You're sick. And to think that they could be racist or have any animosity towards me is the most scary experience that someone can have. And I think that people that aren't black and brown don't necessarily understand that concern or that fear that comes with that because we're treated differently. So we've heard so many times in the news, even like Serena Williams talking about how her pain wasn't taken seriously when she was in the doctor's office. These thoughts truly do impact our health. And I just wish people could put those two things together. I completely agree. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Agile, for your time. And um, thank you all for joining us on SBH Bronx Health Talk. For more podcasts from SBH Bronx Health Talk, please visit Talk.org Or check us out on Apple iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and the sbhny.org website. Thank you for joining us.